Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Okay, well, this morning my guest is Jay Christoph, four-time winner of the Aurealis Awards for Best Australian Speculative Fiction, author of two best-selling young adult series, The Nevernight Chronicle and Lotus Wars, as well as co-authoring the New York Times best-selling young, young adult speculative fiction trilogy, The Illuminae Files. Uh, Jay has a new novel out, published by Alan and Unwin, which is titled Lifelike. It's a young adult sci-fi novel that I've just finished and really enjoyed. To tell us more about Lifelike, welcome to not... Welcome to Published or Not, Jay Christoph. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be back. <laughs> Our pleasure. Jay, let's start with a vividly imagined but brutal world you've created for Lifelike. How would you describe this world to listeners? The easiest way to describe it would be a fusion between Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> Blade Runner, kind of old, good Harrison Ford Blade Runner, not bad new Ryan Gosling Blade Runner, <laughs> and a little bit of Romeo and Juliet thrown in for good measure. So it's post-apocalyptic yep. and we've got a love story at the heart of it yeah well look i might even read out the um the blurb from the front cover it says it's romeo and juliet meets mad max meets x-men with a little bit of blade runner cheering from the sidelines so they've described it very well now the character right at the center of uh lifelike would you think it's fair to describe her as a shapeshifter in what sense? Well, in the sense we're not quite sure of her identity. And yeah. without giving any spoilers away, you keep us guessing all the way up to the end. Yeah, sure. She's she's a person who only has memories of the last two years of her life. She lives in a place called Dregs, which is the ruins of California. Uh, it's set in a post-apocalyptic United States, and most of California has dropped into the sea. And she's a little bit of a mechanic tech whiz kid, but she and her family were attacked by militants on the mainland two years ago and she's fled to that island with her grandfather and she lives there now with pretty hazy recollections of how she got there she got shot in the head during an uprising so when a bullet gets into your brain meets it tends to scramble things up so her recollections of exactly how she got there and why are a little bit fuzzy and the recollections that she does have partly in her brain but they're partly in silicon chips behind her ear aren't they yeah uh, she has what's called a mem drive implanted in her head which is basically a wetware interface between silicon chips and her actual brain and her grandfather has reconstructed her childhood based on what he experienced uh, and so she has fragmented memories of who she was as a little girl but it's not a perfect process so some of it's a little bit fuzzy around the edges. Okay now you mentioned wetware as in a type of chip if you like uh, this is one of the you've got an incredibly powerful imagination and you're going beyond the uh, I guess the silicon based type chips you're talking about wetware which is another uh, corporation that's championing biological technology is that right is that yeah a good it's, way a, to describe? it's an interface between mechanical technology and human beings it, it's cybernetics essentially wetware is a term that's been around for a long time it was I think it was first coined by writers like William Gibson way back in 1980s when they were writing books like Neuromancer but yeah it's essentially an interface between mechanical technology and the human body and we're seeing that now um, in kind yeah. of pioneering work in cybernetics where people can have prosthetic limbs put on their body and can activate those limbs through 
interface with their actual brain. So it's a, it's based on real world tech. We're not all that far away from being able to do this thing in real life. Okay. Well, now you mentioned William Gibson, and uh, one of the things that I, I really liked about Lifelike was that you're very aware of the genre, the tradition. In fact, in the in the prelims, you've got Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. Yeah. However, you've crossed them all out. And what have you put in place? I mean, the, those are interpretations of the laws by the robots created under those laws. I mean, it's really interesting. Asimov wrote those three laws as part of his speculative fiction suite, but they're actually used in robotics labs all around the world today. Oh, it's the really? foundation of robotics technology. So basically, a, a robot can't harm a human being. A robot can't, by a mission of action, allow a human being to come to harm. Um, and a robot can't harm itself uh, unless it has to countermand those first two laws. But when you're a robot living under those laws, you can interpret them slightly differently. So... That's part of what the book is about, exploring creatures that are created under these strictures and have to live in virtual servitor-type roles, um, but being intelligent enough and aware enough that they are in a servitor-type role and have been created specifically to serve other beings. So it's not entirely a fair state of being, and some of the creatures created under those strictures rebel against it. Uh, good, which is, gives plenty of room for uh, story building out of that. But also two other influences. One is an historical influence, Anastasia, the Grand Duchess uh, yeah. of uh, Tsar Nicholas's daughter. Uh, what drew you to Anastasia as a, an influence? Well, originally, way back in 2010, when I first started working on this book, it was going to be a steampunk novel, and it was oh, going okay. to be set in 1917 revolutionary Russia. It was going to be a story about Anastasia. Wow. Uh, but in the three years it took me to actually finish writing the book, it changed into something totally different. I realise it's an enormous leap from revolutionary Russia to post-collapse United States. <laughs> um, but that undercurrent, the the influence of the Romanov story still informed Eve as a character. So yeah. uh, that was one of the few things that remained from that original version, plus the name of the dog. The dog was called Kaiser, uh, named after Kaiser Wilhelm, the German head of state. Oh, and yeah, so he was originally clever. a German shepherd, and that, I kept that name. In, I was wondering the if there was a connection, you know, having just uh, you know, the centenary of World War One and the Kaiser's name being in the news, very timely to have that there. <laughs> um, and uh, some listeners might have noticed that uh, I refer to Anastasia, and there's one name for the character, Anna, you, and you just refer to her as Eve. So this is part of uh, what I was leading with about she is a bit of a shapeshifter. And in that vein, is it Eve, is it Anna, another uh, I found extraordinary influence and a really welcome one was the 17th century epic poem Paradise Lost by John, John Milton. Milton yeah. How did uh, Paradise Lost influence lifelike? Uh, well, like I say, the, the story is set in part in a kind of futuristic city called Babel and there is a head technician who creates what is essentially a race of artificial beings. And they become aware that they're living in a in a servitor type state, and so they rebel against that eventually. And that would, yeah, that was informed by the the fall of Lucifer and his angels in Paradise Lost. I actually quote a couple of Milton pieces in the book. Um, yeah, as a as a legend, Paradise Lost has always fascinated me. I was raised a good Catholic boy, so it's something that I grew up with and wanted to explore in a in a futuristic context, I guess. Well, some of the descriptions in Paradise Lost, which give uh, the Garden of Eden not the sort of little pretty 
picture place it's often depicted it's this huge wedge of land between the Tigris and the Euphrates and sometimes when you're describing landscapes I got a real sense of that distance and vision that uh, in your writing too would you think there's a link between the way Milton saw uh, Eden and the way you're describing the world that uh, Eve slash Anna is in uh, perhaps subconsciously it's not something that I tried to do mm. overtly I tend to be a pretty visual writer I tend to see the book playing out like a movie in my head and I tend to write down what I see so yeah perhaps subconsciously I'm I'm sure that the book owes a lot more to Milton than I recognize initially. Yeah and a very literary influence because when uh, in the opening scenes when uh, Anna is in the war dome uh, battling I was starting to think oh hang on is this going to be a bit like the Hunger Games which I enjoyed too but uh, it does start a little bit that way but you take it off in a, a really different direction. Yeah, I tried to subvert a few of the tropes that you see in young adult literature. Um, I'm a huge YA fan. I read it all the time. So the thing is, when you read a lot of it, you begin to see a lot of those patterns. And once you become familiar with them, you begin to understand how you can subvert reader expectations and break those tropes. So yeah, I try to have a, a little bit of fun playing in the margins. And you keep actually breaking those tropes. The expectations set up right at the start. You keep getting new insights all the way through, which kept me hooked turning the pages. Now, if um, if I could just bring up uh, at the end of April, you spoke at the uh, inaugural uh, Speculative Fiction Writers Festival in Melbourne. It's called Speculate. Yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, it was held at the Gasworks Theatre in Albert Park. How did you find the sessions you were involved in, particularly the improvised story session? <laughs> the live D&D game. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was the highlight of the day. I spoke to a lot of the guests afterwards and they said that was the highlight for them as well. We we essentially played an improv game of D&D on yeah, that's stage. that's Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons but, and Dragons, yeah. yes. Uh, okay. I've been a D&D player since I was 12 years old, but we actually had a live band accompanying us while we played. So going back to regular Tuesday night D&D with my friends after that is <laughs> going to seem like a bit of a letdown. Well, uh, and also the the MC, the leader of the story, was a professional stand-up comic. Yeah, Ben. Uh, yeah, he was amazing. He ran a great game. And afterwards, everyone who played in the game asked if he could run a game for us for real. Again, we wouldn't be uh, playing with orchestral accompaniment, but uh, yeah. hopefully we'll get together. Do you remember together. Ben's surname? I think it's McKenzie from yeah. memory. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a stand-up comic. He's a really funny guy. And he had the ability to kind of improvise as we went we we made up rough characters before we went into the session and every one of us had a dark secret and a and an overarching goal that we wanted to achieve um and he was great in kind of bringing those secrets to the fore we only had an hour and a half so there was very little that we could explore but yeah oh well that's the length of a feature film and you the story (laughs) actually built really well everyone was just enjoying and laughing along and uh seeing people spontaneously create characters did someone actually record that I hope they did. Yeah, yeah I have no idea, actually. I think everything was being recorded. Yeah. yeah. So maybe the specular guys will put it up in their website. Yeah, well, was, I mean, it was a fantastic thing to kick off that. And um, hopefully next year, the second one will uh, uh, be, uh, be there for us all to enjoy. Now, I always like to ask authors uh, this question at the end of my interviews. Uh, this seems like an easy question, but it's pretty hard to answer. And, uh, the different points of view are really interesting. In your view, what makes a story great? Uh, I'll go back to the Ray Bradbury quote. Um, I mean, in terms of science fiction and fantasy storytelling, Bradbury said that science fiction is a way to solve problems while pretending not to look at them. And he likened it to the myth of Perseus and Medusa, Medusa being a creature that turned you to stone if you looked at her directly. So Perseus used a mirrored shield to look at her while he chopped off her head. I think great speculative fiction is a way of solving and addressing problems that we face in the real world today 
while not directly looking at them. Um, a story about red people being mean to blue people can still be a story about racism. A story like Mad Max, where you have crazy people driving around in a post-collapse Australia in amazing cars, is still a story about our reliance on fossil fuels. So, to me, great speculative fiction is about looking at, examining, and maybe averting the problems of the day through the lens of futurism. Well, now, anyone would think that was a planned, scripted answer. That was so articulate. That was great. I've said that a couple of times. Well, I, well, I can't say you've been asked that question. All right. Well, it was absolutely brilliant. We'll there. pretend it was improvised. <laughs> okay. Well, I've been talking with Jay Kristoff and his latest novel, Lifelike. And I should let listeners know, know that Lifelike... Uh, the second I is a one and the last E is a three. <laughs> so if you're trying to Google it um, and if that comes up, no, you haven't made a mistake. And it's published by Alan and Unwin and is uh, now out in all good bookstores. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Jay Christoph. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be back. Well, Ewan, um, my book also deals with a sort of shape-shifting and memories, but in a totally different way. The very title of Yvonne Fine's collection of short stories gives an indication of the cultural foundation the stories contain. The book is called Choose Somebody Else, and we'll get into the meaning of that title in a moment. So, Yvonne, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you for having me. I mean, that whole notion of choose or chosen, what's significant there? Well, it's actually a, a quote from um, a Yiddish writer who spanned the 19th and 20th centuries. And I'm sure you've all heard of Fiddler on the Roof. Well, Fiddler on the Roof was based on Shalom Aleichem, who was the author, um, on a story called Tevye the Milkman. And so Tevye obviously makes the transition into, uh, into Fiddler on the Roof, but um, he's talking to God in this short story, and he's saying, you know, God, I know you've chosen us, you know, for all the glories in the world, but for once could you choose somebody else? <laughs> Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? Exactly. Yes, indeed. Exactly. So the notion of the chosen. So the stories actually tap into the traditions, personalities, religion and practices that we find within the Jewish community. And the nature of the storytelling is layered, adding dimension and depth. Actually, one question there is, is that a tradition within Jewish storytelling, that layering? Um, yes, that's very interesting. I don't, I don't know that you could say there is a, a single tradition of Jewish storytelling. There are so many layers to that. Um, the Yiddish storytellers, the um, the post, well, the twentieth century, particularly American storytellers. But yes, in the original stories that come from the medieval texts called the Talmud, it's definitely um, you start. They say, come and see or come and listen, and they tell you a story and then, oops, all of a sudden you've gone back in time or they imagine what might happen. So, yes, it is very layered and very much um, travelling between times. Because this is the challenge with some of your stories, this dimension that is in the stories. Now, there's one uh, called The Teacher, and uh, you have Jacqueline learning yoga from a teacher who remains nameless. I was ushered into her life in the springtime of my 10th year. She was only 55, but her face was already deeply furrowed. It seemed to me then that she must have been at least 99 or 100, and she was tiny. I could not understand why she would choose to inhabit the frame of a girl my age. In spite of that, her black gleaming eyes, level with my own, could still strip me of my pre-adolescent secrets. My reading of that is that 
the teacher and the student are almost interchangeable here. Mm, mm. That, I think that's exactly how it begins. And then the teacher can't grow. She's stuck at that height. But Jacqueline does grow. And Jacqueline comes almost to understand that um, the first generation, the survivor generation of the Holocaust, um, as, um, as deserving of sympathy and compassion as they are, um, can't see beyond that trauma. And so they leave a legacy of trauma to the next generations who have to make, um, who have to make decisions about how they're going to live in a post-Holocaust world. So the teacher is stuck. She can't grow. Um, Jacqueline says there's got to be more than this hatred, that this resentment of what happened. But in, in some ways, the teacher is Jacqueline in, in the sense that we grow up with uh, I, ideas that are embedded into us um, by our parents or grandparents or culture, and yet we've got, as each generation, has to learn to move forward on mm. uh, and, and address mm. the past. But you've also got another student that comes in, Nunya, who uh, was helped by the Poles, and she actually challenges the teacher. And so in some ways, the characters become representative of uh, sort of ideas within the community, in, in the larger community. Mm. They're symbolic more than anything mm. else. Mm. Is that what you're...? Um, I think, yeah, you do have this triangle, this tripod, whatever you want to call it. You've got, um, you've got the teacher at the top, um, or pr actually, you've probably you've got Jacqueline at the top and the teacher and and Nunya at um, at the two lower angles, and um, Jacqueline is trying to fight her way out of that generation's um, obsession, and Nunya comes in with a with a third a third viewpoint, which is, I know we're supposed to hate all the Poles because they assisted in the in the genocide. But the Poles saved my life. They hid me. They, um, they risked their own lives for me. And the yoga teacher um, can't accept that. Even though she didn't actually experience the Holocaust, she fled to Palestine in time. Um, but she has taken over the hatred of the survivors. And she cannot, she will not accept Nunya's ability to see both sides of the argument. But you're making a comment in some ways about what cultures do, what individuals do, mm. of co-opting the hatred, as you say, even though they haven't experienced it. And, and this is what societies do in some ways. And we often, uh, not that we would in the case of the Holocaust, lose sight of the original reason for the hatred in some instances. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I mean, this layering also exists um, in another story called Both Sides. And I'm sort of wanting... To, hoping to sort of go through each to give uh, listeners an idea of what you're doing with a lot of these stories. And we're not going to be able to touch on all of them, but, for example, here we have Rachel dieting in both sides, and she keeps a diary and she entertains the residents in old age homes. But on the first level, you've got her personal life. Uh, she's struggling in her relationship with her husband, and her mother-in-law is a complete and utter... Um, I don't know if I can use it. Um, Rafe's mother calls to thank me for Friday night. I'm wary from the get-go. Those profiteroles, darling, she says. Outstanding. I wouldn't have asked you to pack some up for me to take home, but I have to watch my figure. B 
bitch. She's as long and thin as Pinocchio's nose. Oh, and sweetie pie, you haven't forgotten the Arison wedding only three weeks ago. No, I haven't forgotten it, you sociopath. It's one of my deepest pleasures to get out in public at this size. Tell you what, she says, if you lose four kilos before the wedding, I'll take you shopping for a new dress. Wouldn't that be lovely? I have a dress. Thank you, Hannah. So that layer, that, that surface layer in some ways of that uh, interchange mm. between people, and there's, so there's that struggle. But on another level then, uh, you've got... Um, this idea, which I'm wondering if anybody other than someone within the Jewish community could say it. My parents also survived Hitler's whirlwind of blood and tragedy. In fact, Hitler introduced them to one another in one of his concentration camps. I realised from a very early age that I wouldn't have been born were it not for the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The profundity of that idea, mm -hmm. the shock of that idea. What are you trying to do? Um, well, I think, again, um, my generation and certainly the third generation, in a sense, is trying to make sense of what happened. And sometimes black humour is the only way to go. So that when you meet the mother-in-law, um, if, if you're looking at, at what she's doing, um, there's a piece that's there's a part of that story that says my mother-in-law doesn't doesn't eat she or my my mother-in-law doesn't eat therefore she is, is yes. um and and um trying to the whole food issue is is a very layered issue among jewish people um because there's that little saying was it um you know which sums up uh, the jewish mindset was they tried to kill us they failed let's eat um <laughs> And so, um, yeah, I, I address those problems on an intergenerational level. But that begs the question then of the generational legacy of the Holocaust in terms of the shadow it casts on those that survived. Uh, they pass it on in, in the way they live onto the next generation. What is the legacy then for the generations that follow mm. in terms of, well, you need to remember but how do you remember mm. how is this going to affect your life then mm. is mm. there an answer i don't know if there mm. there would be well i think it very it's such a parental influence thing i mean i grew up with with survivor parents they only told me stories i think and my sister that they thought we would cope with so they were stories of lucky escapes of um of just sort of a smart moment that that um you know just helped them they were not stories that would give us nightmares, though we still had the nightmares. Um, but um, the third generation, that's my daughter's generation, um, the black humour comes very much into their response. They refuse to take, oh, not all of them, but uh, there are two. Um, in the, the, the kids like my daughter, they refuse to take it on. They don't want to have it define their lives or their identities. Then there is the other side of that, and it really is the obverse side of the coin, um, where you have, the, they're sort of right-wing nutbags um, who who want to just stay in that place, stay in that that incredibly full, nasty diaper of, of self-abnegation, if you like, because they weren't there, survivor guilt. And and they can't see past that. So um, it's two very different attitudes, but it, they're, they're both very, um, they're very, um, I don't know, they demonstrate the third generation's 
But it's a layering then in storytelling because there is a, a, a chance for different interpretations, different readings. Mm. You've got the stereotypical, uh, lovely characters uh, in the same story. Um, in one of the old folks' homes, Ina. Is that how you pronounce Ina. it? Ina. Ina. Darling, says Ina, rolling up to me on her walker. Sweetheart, darling, you look to me a bissel fatter, a bissel bigger than last time you came. Is everything all right by you? Is your husband, heaven forbid, looking at the other women? You know this happens when you let yourself go. See, my apologies, but there's this lovely characterizations mm. that you provide, which are also then, uh, there's another story called Neighbours, and you hear the conversations um, there. Another layer within the same story, mm. this notion of identity. Mm. And so there's um, Rachel eating, but is this going to mean she loses her identity because at one stage she's told, well, her husband uh, is saying you need to lose mm. weight. She meets Jake, size doesn't matter. Uh, Ina is says your voice is changing because of your size. So it's almost as if her identity is being altered, mm. challenged, mm. she's morphing. What she has to live, yes, yeah, she is. She definitely, she changes back and forth, but towards the end when she understands that you can put back all the weight she's lost in, in a few months, um, then she understands that, yes, she can change, but maybe she is stuck within some, or she's fallen into some vortex. But again, my attempt to be, it's a little black, um, but um, when her husband leaves her, um, she imagines her parents' reaction. She said, you know, I can't face them. Uh, my mother would only say, nobody was fat in Auschwitz. And my father would say, um, of course he left you. Who wouldn't leave a person um, with a tuchus, with a backside the size of Tasmania? And so they have this, um, this cruel and yet, you know, achingly funny take on the world that the next generations have to live through. Again, another layer, which is almost uh, poetic, because the story ends, just because you lose it all doesn't mean you can't put it all back on again. And the all here is that whole legacy, the identity, the history, uh, the, um, the, the personal mm. layering. So, I mean, that final paragraph took me a long time to write. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if you, if you gave it um, over. Would you mind to read that last um, bit? At OA, OA was... Overeaters uh, Anonymous. Overeaters. At OA, they say it's never over. Just because you lose it all doesn't mean you can't put it all back on again. In only a few months, if you're not careful, you can go from 60 kilos back to 100. It's that easy. Some people do it many times, which makes me think now that I have survived the six-year Reich, yet was never to know if or when its latent scourge would become manifest again, wouldn't I vault after Primo Levi into the Italian stairwell? Wouldn't so, I plunge? Yeah, so she's likening it in a, in a really, um, I don't know, in, in a really oh, desperate way that her weight loss and weight gain is like, well, if you can put it back on again, and if I had to think that, you know, I had suffered the six-year Reich and it could come back again so easily, wouldn't I jump? Yeah, but the dieting is synonymous with the suffering, mm, exactly. uh, the, the, the global suffering, um, etc. So within each of these stories, and, we, and we've only had time to, to look at uh, very, well, one in detail and reference to others, you've got um, Nechman's recipe and you bring up Jewish mysticism in that. Mm. Um, the opening story, and I think I've only just got time for this, 
uh, looks at boat people, where you have, in fact, taken this whole notion of uh, people migrating, but it's a collective migration at the end of mm. that story where you make the reference... Um, it is not until they stride the firmness of the earth, whether struggling from the primordial ooze for the very first time or leaving that ark beached improbably upon the mountain, either emerging from the Red Sea or disembarking at Port Melbourne after the German nightmare or even finding sanctuary in Germany after the Syrian nightmare that they can hope to lay claim to any sort of distinctive identity. So within that story, boat people, that suffering is synonymous across cultures mm, as well mm, mm. and everyone seems to go through it yes uh, i'm getting a nod from you in here i'm there, there is so much more that we could have talked about in this collection uh of short stories it's called choose somebody else the author is yvonne fine and it was from wild dingo press so yvonne, thank you thank you